You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. Welcome back to another episode of the Western Rookie Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Krebs, and today we are going to be talking big mule deer. I have Henry Ferguson on. You've maybe seen him as Big Chief Wackabuck on Instagram, which is an, it's a very interesting, unique name. Um, but what struck me about Henry's page is all of the big, I say giant mule deer. You'll, you'll hear Henry um, be a little bit more humble than that. But how are you doing today, Henry? I'm good, Brian. How are you? I'm doing great. So like I said, I think Henry's got a wall behind him of what I would call giant mule deer. And when I said that earlier, he goes, well, I've only, I haven't shot any big ones, but I did have a 190 and I, and I just, my jaw hit the floor. So, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I, I think I'm a little, a little skewed because I was listening to a podcast yesterday and this guy, yeah, I got 11 bucks over 200 inches. I'm like, unbelievable. I, I'm not sure I've seen 11 bucks over 200 inches in my life. But, uh, you know, and I mean, that's that includes driving around state parks and stuff. But, yeah, just uh, it, uh, the mule deer thing, it just kind of got in my blood about 20 years ago. And I, I just have no desire to get it out of my blood at this point. It's it's my passion. It's it, it just brings a ton of joy to my life, man. It's a it's a challenge. It's a something I get to do with my family now. And it's just it's been a blast. Yeah, I see from your page your son is starting to, well, who knows when the pictures were taken, but he's he's a teenager getting close to, you know, graduating high school, if not already has yep. graduated, and so that's got to be fun, and you got a pack mule. <laughs> that's true. So it's, it's been funny to watch that evolution because he's 17 now. He graduates next year, so he's literally just finishing up his junior year next week, um, but he is – 
he's just he's as eaten up with it as his dad is he loves it so it's a lot of fun man it's been it's been great to to hunt with him and my wife hunts as well um she's she's a heck of a hunter herself she's got a hoping young mule deer and then shot a few with a few real nice bucks all both of them bigger than that with a rifle and i mean and then she's got the biggest elk in the family too so yeah it's it's a lot of fun being able to hunt with your family and if, if there's something better than that i haven't found it yet yeah that's a yeah, that's sir. a big good one i'm we always hunt with our families uh my wife is getting more and more into hunting. She comes from a hunting family, but she's been so busy with school and residency that she's finally finishing up. And she said she first thing she wants to go out, do out west is an antelope hunt, and then she wants to do the mule deer thing. So I'm excited Very to cool. kind of experience that, just like you said, hunting with the family. Um, but what brought you? You mentioned 20 years ago you got hooked on mule deer is that did you move out west 20 years ago or what no, kind of happened I grew up I grew up out west and honestly I went on um it, it just something just kind of triggered in me I was I was a, a, a target archer for a long time and I, you know and I bow hunted a little bit but it just wasn't really my passion and so it was I was a little later on that I really kind of transitioned over to the hunting side and and now you're hard pressed to find me at a single tournament <laughs> it's just you know the the hunting's gotten in my blood and i just like i said it's something that it's just consumed me yeah but it's easy yeah to i get just I, I went out on a went out on a hunt shot a shot a doe my first first year i really took it seriously i went out and shot a doe and of course, that was opening weekend and literally covered in bucks for the rest of the week. I mean, just covered them. I I couldn't go anywhere without seeing bucks. So I promised myself, like, all right, next year, next year, I'm going to hold out and I'm going to I'm going to get a good buck. And actually, that wide buck right over the bookcase, there's the one I got that year, that next year. So um, but it was it was just kind of funny. I and. So the next year I went out there and gave it my all, shot that buck. My wife got a real nice buck. She got a Pope and Young buck like eight days after I shot mine. Um, and it, it just, it just triggered something, man. And it was. It, I think it went sausage and stuff. And then once the heads came back and being able to look at those on the wall and relive those memories, I, I wanted more of that. I wanted more of being able to relive those memories. And so we just went to work at it and it's been, you know, each year uh, its own little special set of challenges and unique circumstances and, you know, unique ways of screwing up sure thing encounters. And, you know, it's, but that's, that's how I learned. I, I'm not somebody who can sit there and I learned a lot from reading forums like monster muleys and stuff like that, but truly I'm a hands-on kind of learner. You can ask any of my teachers in high school. I don't learn well out of a book. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. but yeah, if you give me a, a hands-on way to, to apply it, then, uh, then it's going to be very different. And that's, that's how I've, I've learned the best is just getting out there, doing a lot of scouting, um, spend as much time out during the summer as I can looking at, uh, you know, looking at bucks, kind of cataloging bucks, seeing, you know, who the up and comers are and, what who the target bucks will be for this year and um and then you know 
spending as much of the off season as humanly possible shooting my bow and just making sure I'm prepared and ready to ready to take on those challenges. Are you, so are, are you, you doing so mostly you bow hunting? I, I have shot, let's see, I've shot one of everything on the wall. My wife has two rifle bucks up here. My son has two rifle bucks over here um, or three rifle bucks over there. And I've got one rifle buck. Everything else is archery. I've got like 10 of them up here that are archery bucks. So oh that's God. what I do. Oh. I mean, I've got, I've, so I've got a, I've got a, a 15 year streak going right now of getting a deer with my bow. And I, it's a, that's my, the day I look forward to the most all year. Don't tell my wife and son. <laughs> ah, tell them they know. <laughs> yeah, they'll be there with you. That does that does that have like a sense of pressure associated with it? Fifteen straight years of punching a tag with your bow. I mean, bow hunting whitetails is one thing. You can get food plots and tree stands, and not too many people are hard pressed to get a shot opportunity at a deer. But like spot and stock mule deer with a bow, man, that's a next level to have 15 years of consistent success. You know, it's each one's kind of come uh, under its own circumstance. Like this year, my my normal spots were just blown out. I mean, man, there were way too many hunters in there. And in addition to that, I just wasn't seeing the bucks I wanted to see. Um, so I actually um, went to an old, old spot. I mean, when I say an old spot, like a spot I hadn't hunted since like 2007 and ended up finding the buck there. But, but, you know, as, as you get farther down that road, it, I, yeah, there was a lot of pressure early on. There was, I, I won't, I won't lie. I, you know, like year 10 through 13. Yeah. There was a lot of pressure, but I just, I haven't felt it since then. I, 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 I think, I won't say it's been the pressure's been replaced by confidence, but I'm more confident in my abilities now. It, but that that all is just part of the equation, you know. I mean, you've got to have. It, it, I'm confident in it because I put in the time. I know where the bucks live. I know if they bed in some certain spots, I've got high per, higher percentage stock opportunities than than others. And that's the kind of stuff that over the years you just get better at picking those out. You know, you just get better at identifying the higher odds propositions and um, you, you kind of help avoid some of the some of the dry runs, as I used to call them, you know, just coming back from a stock going, you know, just scratching your head, kicking rocks and going, I had no chance. I had zero chance, but I went anyway. And, you know, like I said, that's that's how I learned. Um, but, yeah, that's just kind of how I've I've gone about it is is. Um, just each year learning from it. And so now all that body of work has kind of come into, I go into it a little more confident, but I, I'm, you know, now I'm looking for bigger and better bucks every year and it's, it's getting hard. It, that, that gets more difficult. And I've kind of come to the realization that I'm just going to hunt the biggest bucks I can find. How, how long does it take you to find a target buck? I mean, do you start you know, June 1st, or do you start a couple weeks before well, season? I usually start around 4th of July. I used to start in May and June when the antlers were just starting to pop back in. But, you know, when they've just got like a, a nub coming out of their heads, 
everything looks like it's going to be huge. So um, by 4th of July, usually you can kind of start to sort the zeros from the heroes. Um, you know, once they're, they're split by then, you know, they're up, out to that first split or second split rather. And you can start to see, hey, that buck's really carrying that mass well, or that buck's going to be real wide. So that's what I'm going to keep an eye on. Um, but I, I get out, I get out a few times a week. Um, and, and I mean, it comes at pretty significant expense to uh, a lot of other things, jobs, um, uh, you know, other stuff like that. But I get out a couple times a week to get out and scout, get out and get a look around, see what's, uh, see what's moving, see what's growing. And that's how I, that's how I do it. When you're looking for bucks in the summer, are you using like a spotting scope on a tripod? Or are you just using binos oh, from the truck? I that. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's hardly ever binos from the truck. Uh, most of the spots that I hunt, I we're hiking in a little bit to get there. Um, I mean, some were hiking a couple hundred yards, some were hiking a couple miles to get there, but yeah, it's, it's almost always going to be putting boots on the ground to get up to a glassing point and then sitting down behind my binos and try, you know, on it, I've got my binos on a tripod and I've gotten spotting scopes sitting right next to me. So I'll glass, I'll always glass with my binos and then, you know, find the deer and then get the better look with the tripod. And I've got a buddy who glasses with his tripod, with it, or with a tripod, with spotting scope. I've got a buddy who glasses with his spotting scope and it drives me insane because I don't know how he does it. Um, and doesn't have migraines like every single day. Cause you're, you know, you're, you're squinting an eye and you're looking like a pirate through, through one eye. Um, and I don't, I don't know how that doesn't drive him crazy, but he does it. He does it well. He does. He's very effective doing it. I might be the crazy one, but I'll use my right eye and I'll set my spotter at a certain elevation, right? I usually start at the top of the mountain and work down. I, you know, I cover everything quick with binos, but then once I'm like, all right, there's nothing within 100, 200 yards. Like now it's time to set up and start gridding with the glass. I'll set my elevation and I'll work side to side and I'll go, you know, I can hit it with my nose and keep pointing it more yeah. left. And then I'll switch eyes and I'll bring the other eye back because I was worried about the same thing, like too much eye strain on one side and you start getting a headache because you're looking through one eye. So I'll actually switch eyes. And every time I do it, someone's like, what are you doing? You use your left eye to spot? I'm like, well, I don't want to just so use I'm left one. Eye dominant. I'm left eye dominant. So I do look through the spotter with my left eye. But uh, I shoot right-handed, but I'm, I'm very left eye dominant. But I'm like the most right-handed person you've ever met. So... So anyway, I, I do, I mean, my, my technique, I glass through binos. I've got a pair of 12 by 50. I've got the Leupold uh, BX5 Santiums, which I think great value in optics. And so I, I use those and I put those on a tripod and then I will literally sit there. And like you said, I'll set the tension on that pan pretty light so I can just kind of move it with my face. And I'll, I'll do that and I'll, I'll grid out a whole hillside, you know, just pan and pan into the right, just like you're reading a book, you know, and then come back and pan to the right again and pan to the right. Um, but I'll, I can spot stuff a couple miles away through those 12s pretty easily. Um, and so that's, like I said, I spot everything through those. It's, it's a rare day that I spot something through the, through the spotter 
I think that's one of the major things whitetail hunters from the Midwest will struggle with is how slow you should go with your glass to really spot. I mean, especially if you're looking for bedded game, especially bedded mule deer, because those yeah. things disappear in some scrub brush like nothing. But, I mean, I assume you're talking like we could spend hours looking at this one hillside where a Midwest hunter Oh yeah! Like when I yeah. started, you'd show up with your binos and go <laughs> go like this a couple times and go. Nope, there's nothing there. Let's go to the next ridge. Well, that's not unique to the Midwest. Most people who glass in the in the West have the same technique, <laughs> um, and and glassing's just not an effective tool in their in their tool belt. But but really, what what I'll do is I'll sit down and I just I want to find a spot where I'm pretty comfortable. Um, I'm not packing a chair or anything along with me. I, I'm just I'm going to find somewhere ideally where I can kind of lean up against a a blown down log or a a tree or a stump or something. And then I'll just sit there and kind of wear in my butt groove in the ground and, uh, and, and, and glass for, for hours there. But, but yeah, I, I do. I spend, um, again, the, the majority of that time though is spent looking through those 12s and glass and, and you, you talked about, there's, there's different phases and types of glassing, and that's important to, to distinguish. So when you first get to a place, when I first get there and I sit my butt down, I will look, I'll do a quick visual with my eyes. If I see something, I'll look at that immediately through the binos. Um, but I want to make sure there's nothing real obvious that I'm overlooking. Then I'll sit down and do a quick scan, just kind of hand holding the binos. And again, you know, I, I'm going to spot animals both ways, maybe not every time, but most of the time I'm going to spot animals both ways. But once you start doing that more fine tuned, uh, fine glassing, what, what I'm looking at is for kind of a speed check. If I'm not seeing birds flying around out there, then I'm going too fast. If I'm sitting there and, you know, in the, in the optics and you know, I see a bird fly around and, you know, that's, that's kind of telling me that I'm going slow enough that I'm catching the details and I'm seeing what's in my field view. That's a good way to put it. I've never heard that, like looking for other signs of movement, even if it's not a deer to kind of gauge whether or not you're, you're moving too fast or too slow. And a lot of times, I mean, that changes, right? If you're looking at a hillside 600 yards away, you're going to be moving a little faster because there's not as much ground. But if you move that fast on a hillside a mile away, I mean, you're going to be missing stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and quite often you're not seeing the whole animal. You're not looking over there and going, oh, hey, a deer. You know, it's like a big broadside silhouette of a deer. Those, Well, those are pretty easy. You know, typically I'm going to, I'm going to catch a butt or, I mean, you know, that white butt that kind of sticks out or the face of a deer, even, you know, on an older deer, you'll see that white face. And those are, those are characteristics that I'm always looking for and just color contrast that I'm always on the lookout for. So when you find a buck in, let's say you find a good buck middle of July and you, and you tell yourself, this is someone I want to come back to this fall. You know, I don't know how he's going to finish out yet, but, you know, good enough for me or whoever this is in the situation, it's good enough. Is there a pretty darn good chance you're going to find that deer again in the same, you know, pocket come bow season? Well, if it's bow season, yeah. Yeah, there's a there's an above average chance. Now, they won't stay there the whole season typically. 
um, especially if you're hunting the real high country up, you know, up around Timberline, those animals come and go out of there pretty quick, man. That's, they follow the feed line down. And when the, when they're, when their feed starts burning off, then they just, they literally just follow it down the mountain. And those Alpine bucks will end up within the first week, usually two weeks during our old season structure, but under our new season structure, you've usually got about a week um, before they start bailing off into the, into the trees. Once they get into the trees, man, that's a totally different hunt. It's a totally different hunt. You're, you're almost still hunting, walking through trees slowly, looking for movement and looking for, looking for animals. And whereas, you know, you can, I mean, my, my preferred technique is to watch a buck all morning and watch him until he beds and then find out if that's, you know, you look around and look at kind of that sun coming over and figure out if that bed is going to provide him shade for, you know, an hour two hours, four hours all day. And that's kind of going to determine how long they're going to stay bedded. But, but typically, you know, the, the bucks will bed by 7.30, 8 o'clock at the latest. Um, and I usually see them get back up around between 11 and between, anywhere from 11 to, uh, 11 to 3. But if I had to be out there, if I had to pick like a window to be out there to see deer get up to do that midday feed, it'd be 11 to 1. Okay. That's kind of been our, our, our most consistent spot. So you're saying if, if you see him bed before eight, if you can get at him and get a shot before 11, he's probably not going to move. Going. But if you I'm can't going. do that, then do you just wait and watch him bed, watch him feed yep. and bed again then in the late afternoon? Yep. yep. And typically I I've had pretty good luck shooting him in that first bed. Um, I mean, my biggest buck came from, we were glassing, mid-afternoon you know it was like one o'clock we were out there and I spotted this buck at 1 30 I think and I mean I didn't get narrow in him until a little bit after five o'clock so it was uh and he was only 500 yards away when we spotted him but it was it was a tough 500 yards it was a it was a tough 500 yards to cover it was it was a a crawl it was a combination of crawling and belly crawling through a lot of that so but yeah that's uh that's that's just kind of how it goes i mean hey it's a it, it can be an all-day deal it can be over by 10 o'clock <laughs> yeah so i gotta ask when you're doing the belly crawl have you ever belly crawled up on a snake thank goodness no i hate those little slithery bastards with a fiery passion um no i have i have not um but trust me this guy's always on the lookout for him and that's one of the real nice things about hunting up in that alpine country is there's no snakes up there but um but i i haven't shot a lot of them up there i've shot a, a, a two bucks up real high but that's that's it i had a buddy on so yeah i'm always on the lookout talking about archery antelope and and they used that's to do different. a lot of of uh of blinds in water tanks and he said every now and then you'll see a snake like in the blind or something and it's not the end of the world because you're just kind of getting them out you know you're on your feet you're moving but he said they lost their permission to that and then they had to start doing more spot and stock archery antelope and that was all crawling you know and it's crawling down low in like montana and wyoming yeah and he said one time he was crawling and all of a sudden he heard the 
and he's like, nope, F it. This, there's not an antelope in the world worth it. And he just backed out and forgot completely. He didn't even see the snake ever. He just heard it. And he's like, not <sighs> worth it. <laughs> he just stood see, right I, up, I, blew the hunt, antelope bailed, and he just walked away. See, uh, he, you know what? In my, in my estimation, he made the exact right call. Um, I, I'll tell you, those things are, I, I don't mess around with snakes, man. I just don't. I, I literally hate those things. And when I hear that buzz, I'm not a small guy, but I can, I can pick them up and put them down pretty quick when I hear that buzz. Yeah. That heart rate yeah. gets going and you start moving fast. <laughs> I, uh, I was at a mule deer foundation banquet a long time ago and I went by myself. So I'm sitting at a table of eight guys that I've never met. And the only thing we have in common is we're all hunters. So that naturally we start talking yeah. about hunting. Hey, that's enough. <laughs> and one of the guys starts telling the story and he gets a call one day from his buddy. And his buddy goes, hey, I'm dropping you a pin to a buck I just shot. I need you to come and take care of it. And he's like, what? No, I'm not. I'm working. Like, you are like you can do it. Like, you've packed out all kinds of animals before on one trip. Like, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, I was crawling up on this buck. I was 20 yards away. And I was waiting for him to stand up to shoot him. Right? And I look down, and there's a rattlesnake right in front of me. And sure enough, it's it hits my hand. My left hand just whack. And so he goes, well, either way, I got to go to the hospital. The only thing left is I can just stand up and see if I can shoot this deer. And so he stands <laughs> up, draws, the deer looks at him, he shoots it. It He watches it run across the valley and tip over, and then he goes to the hospital. He And so calls his buddy, and I'm like, there's no way that story is true. Well, he pulled open his phone, and there's a picture of the buck, the dead snake, and his hand all wrapped up in the back of his truck. And I'm like, that is the wildest story I've ever heard in my life about a spot in Stockton. That is that is like the very definition of the Western hunt. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah, that is absolutely crazy. I mean, I can see it. It's like, well, and this person lived out there, so he's used to rattlesnakes. So that's probably why he was like, well nothing to lose now might as well see if i can shoot the deer (laughs) that's i i i applaud him i i think i probably in the at the end of the day i probably would have done the same thing um but uh man that's cool what a story (laughs) yeah what a story he i hope he got that snake mounted alongside the deer (laughs) like coiled up on a pedestal or something because that would yeah no kid story um, oh man but i have feel the same yeah. way about those danger noodles that you do and i don't want any part of one not a fan yeah um not a fan so so bringing it back more to the mule deer so you got the mule deer there's a great chance you're going to find them again in the fall um especially if it's early season so are you typically you're typically then using that like first week or two before they start getting into the timber line to to try to maximize your chance at finding them and, and getting in on them? Yeah, again, I'm not I'm not hunting those big I'm not hunting the high country all that often. Like I said, I have in the past, but I hunt a more transition area that they just it, you probably look at it as a transition area, but it's a year round habitat. Um, and so I our bucks don't necessarily um migrate like like a lot of them do 
but uh, you know, there's always there's always some movement that happens, and you just can't. They will follow the feed no matter what, and even that feed will burn off. And so you know, but they'll be there through. They'll be there typically through the most of the rifle season too. When you say follow the feed, are you talking just green, like whatever's green, they'll be there? Or are you talking like there's different, like different types of plants or pastures that weren't grazed, so they have more? Like what, what's feed look so, like to you? So really, I mean, they're, this the feed I'm looking at, they're, they're feeding on this bitter brush, and the leaves will fall off of that. And so, in, you know, when they're at their most nutritious, they're, you know, it's in that early September to, to October timeframe. But, uh, you know, they'll feed on that stuff all through the summer um like yucca blooms i mean that stuff those will those will go away fairly soon but uh yeah there's it's you know and then up in the high country i mean when those willows start dropping their leaves and stuff man those bucks just they get out of there quick so um and and it's just you can literally follow the elevation down because you know those those nights get colder up there and everything just, and I'm not a, I'm not a botanist by any means, but, but that's, that's just kind of how it seems to me is that, you know, is there, is that, that they're following that, uh, they're following that down. Okay. That makes sense. Where we, where we hunt up in North Dakota, where I've done all, most of my mule deer hunting, it's more grass and sage and cedars, mm-hmm. um, not as much willow. So that's always the big, the big wild card is which, which summer pastures were, grazed this year and which were which of them were left alone for winter pastures and so now they have all that grass yeah there's there's no there's no agriculture where i'm hunting so i mean that's not that there's just none of that that's not even a factor for for us but but yeah that that can definitely be a huge factor in some of that lower country though for sure well that's got to be helpful for like just maintaining consistent spots year after year and not have to worry about like cattle rotations and and stuff like that. Yeah, I've taken a, we've got a couple spots that we've, we've been real, real successful in um, that we've taken a few real nice bucks out of there over the years. Um, You know, three or four of them now, but uh, you gotta, you gotta keep moving though, because people, people get on them and they're, those, those honey holes can go away real fast. And that's, that's pretty frustrating, you know, seeing, uh, seeing your your absolute go-to money can't miss spot showing up and there's two other trucks there and like oh well we'll see if we can work around it and sometimes you can and sometimes you can't you know it depends on how people hunt them i mean if people are just going out and this year this last year man we had we watched guys just charging across big open country just charging across hoping to run into something and meanwhile, we're sitting up on, on these glassing points, just watching, you know, 30, 40 deer go running in every direction that, I mean, they never, some of them, they never even saw. So kind of frustrating, you know, and, but, but everybody has their own style at the end of the day and everybody's, you know, we're all in it for different reasons and out there for different reasons and we get different things out of it. And, you know, just cause our, our style works for us doesn't mean it's, what joe blow is looking for you know yeah so 
So for a, once, for once a, people start blowing through spots like that and scaring deer, I am out. <laughs> I'll come back and hit it on a on a midweek deal if I'm the only one there. But otherwise, I I have I, I won't. I'll go check out my other spots. Yeah, I don't know who said it, but it was a pretty good saying. I'd rather share the woods with a dozen good hunters than one bad hunter. Oh my gosh, so freaking true. I've never heard that before, but that's. Uh, that might end up on my tombstone. <laughs> uh, have you noticed any patterns for like where you find good bucks for the area? Right. Cause we, everyone knows, you know, certain States have bigger bucks, Utah, New Mexico, Nevada. I mean, the Southwest, they're going to have a lot bigger deer on average than some of your, your high pressured over the counter Northern States. Um, but just like a, the better quality bucks for whatever area you're going to is, do you think there's any patterns for where someone could find those high, low, remote, not remote egg, private for like a guy that's going to come out and he can't look at them all summer long. He's got one week to hunt and he's like, where do you start? Honestly, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, And a lot of the, a lot of the, big bucks are coming out of places that you don't expect them. And, you know, it's not real desirable looking country. Maybe it's low deserts or Eastern plains or, you know, just something, something desolate, like, like in those Southwest areas you're talking about. A lot of those big bucks are coming out of really desolate, dry areas where the deer density is low, but the trophy quality can be really high. So, it's tough. And, and honestly, you, you should start to look at, you know, Colorado Parks and Wildlife has something that's pretty unique. They have something called a hunt planner. And you can call and talk to people before you apply. And you can call and talk to these guys in the main office and say, hey, here's what I'm looking for. Here's what, you know, have, have some do a little bit of homework first, you know, go into it and say, hey, here's what I want to get out of this hunt. You know, I'm not necessarily looking for a 195 inch mule deer, but I'm looking to find a decent mature buck. Um, if you're if you're saying, hey, I don't want to see high hunter numbers, then start putting in for ta- start applying for points because that's what it's going to take to get you away from the big mass of people anymore. Um, and it's you know, there's there's a figure out, do you want to hunt them high? Do you want to hunt them low? Do you want to, what's, what's your idea of that real great hunt, you know? Um, and I, I mean, unfortunately they're, they're too late to apply this year, but there's always going to be other opportunities. There's, you know, second, second chance drawings. There's, you know, they start putting tags that come up for sale, up on like Tuesdays and they give you the list on Tuesdays and Wednesday at 11, they go on sale and Wednesday at 1103, they're all gone. <laughs> and, and honestly, I think 1103 is optimistic. I think they might actually be gone by 11 and 30 seconds in, in many, many cases, but, uh, but yeah, it's, that's the game we all have to play anymore. So, but I would, I would suggest doing, um, and if you're not going to, if you want to, if you want to get a little bit more detailed information, join one of the services like Epic Outdoors or Hunt and Fool and talk to some of their guys that they can kind of guide you in and help you narrow that search down a little bit. Yeah, we've talked about Go Hunt a lot 
I'm a, I've been a Go Hunt yeah. subscriber for five oh, six I, years. And same here. It's the I think it's one of the best ways out there to do your own research. I think some of the services you mentioned are more like I'm going to pay someone to do the research for me. Where Go yeah. Hunt is more like here's everything you guys you, can find your own unit with this information. Yep. yep. And so I, I'll be honest. I'm hunting out of state this year. Well, let me let me rephrase that. My 13 preference points and the nine required to draw this point, this tag, tell me I should be hunting in Utah this year. Um, so I've got a really strong chance of drawing a, a pretty good elk tag in Utah this year. And I've done a lot of research on Go Hunt for that. And yeah, that's, I know that I know what I'm going to see over there. I know what to expect. I, you know, it can give you, it can give you that range of, animals you should be looking for i mean hey if i'm in an area that produces 280 bulls and i'm holding out for a 380 well you know what i'm probably going to be pretty disappointed at the end of the hunt but uh you know it's uh it, it's it, that's a great tool go hunt um that's one that like i said i've used it for years i'm a big fan I was just going to ask you is there a is there a dream tag in your mind if i if you could give if you could get any tag in the world and if i just had a little book here i could write you out a tag what would you pick i'll be hunting the ponsagant this year for mule deer archery mule deer then if you're just it just write it down send me the send me the tag i'll send you my address afterwards um yeah that's i i i just want and you know what you know we've got a pretty good uh, selection of mule deer here on the wall and people are like how many is enough and i'm like i don't know just one more <laughs> but i've been saying that for about a decade so i think i don't think people believe me anymore but that's okay um yeah i just i just want to get i just want to get another big mule deer man that's so is it it's the size of the the animals in the Ponsagant that brings you there or is it landscape or, or is it all of the above kind of all of it it's kind of the whole thing um it's kind of one of those mythical places, you know, where everybody just, everybody's drawn to it. It's, it's low country. There's a pretty good deer density there. Um, and I, I feel like now that they've outlawed baiting there, that there's going to be bigger deer in Utah than there ever have been. And I, I just feel like that's going to lead to some really great opportunities over the next few years. But do you know how many points it takes to draw that tag? a freaking ton. I mean, it's like 25, 26 points for archery. And, um, I mean, I could pull up, go hunt and check for sure, but I, I can tell you I'm about halfway there and will likely never get there. So, I mean, truthfully, what, what I'll end up doing, I'll end up hunting somewhere else before then and just working twice as hard and hoping to come out with a, you know, 180 plus buck that, you know, I know that I can look at again, you know, it's to me, it's all about being able to look up on the wall and having those memories rush back and all that, you know, all that went into those hunts, or I, I should, I should be a little more accurate in saying that on the wall, or um, I do have two on the floor there that have not found their way up onto the wall yet, because we just, we don't have any room here. My yeah. office upstairs and when I, when I redo my office, though, I'm going to put those up there. So Yeah, you need to invent a product that's like a wall bracket with with arms, like skull hanger arms or the skull hookers, 
but for yeah. shoulder mounts. So you can put like three on one spot and just angle them out like petals of a flower. So you can, so you can stack more in there. It'd be perfect. And actually I just found there is a company that, that makes that, that makes something like that. And I just, I literally just found these guys a couple weeks ago and I can't, it's like, trophy display or something was it on a barrel like a whiskey I'll barrel to, i'll have to figure it out no it's it's literally a metal bracket that goes on the wall and it has arms that come off so you can like angle deer mounts out from it and yeah that'd be that'd be great but yeah you I, it looks like you would have been an ideal candidate to be a taxidermist on the side and you would have made your money back hand over fist just doing your own work you see, I, I'm somebody who believes that you should support people who are really good at things. And I am not an artistic guy. My son would probably be phenomenal at taxidermy. I would be, I would have a bunch of deer up there that would end up on a bad taxidermy page. So, but you know, I've got a guy here in town that we've, uh, man, I think he's done like 18 mounts for us. So he's, uh, we've, we've, we've been, I, I like to think we funded a fair portion of this new boat purchase, but you know, it's just kind of people we are. We like to help out others. Yeah. We're the same way. Yeah. We pay, pay people for what they're good at and just stick to what you're good at. And we, um, exactly. we've got a local taxidermist and he actually quit taking elk. Cause I brought him an elk. I brought him the elk behind me here. Can't really see it too much, but, um, oh, in the picture there. Yeah. yeah. I, I brought him that elk and, it was just hard on his back. He has some back injuries from back in the day. And he's like, I can't do these elk anymore. They're too big. And so I'm looking for a new guy for elk. But one year we shot 17 big game animals and everything that got taxidermy work goes to him. So we always joke that he's just on the family payroll. I've, I've thought about trying to claim him as a dependent on my taxes, but my accountant says I can't. So, you know, you got to start a t-shirt company or something about big meal deer. So then you can write off all these trips and write off all the mounts and the tags. Well, I give away a lot of jerky every year. And I mean a lot of jerky to, uh, so for my real job, I, I sell furniture to furniture stores and all these furniture stores know, and the buyers especially know that when I come in, I've typically got a bag or two of jerky to, to leave there for the office. So it, it's kind of funny. Everybody, every time I walk in now, if I walk in with just like a, like a binder, I mean, the look of disappointment on people's faces is like, you can almost hear the look of disappointment. That's how, that's how clear it is. So, yeah. But if I walk in with a bag over my shoulder, you know, like, Hey, what you got in there? <laughs> so I do write off a, a fair amount of the processing because I, I give away, we give away a lot of jerky. I mean, a lot to, to dealers. So. And are you bringing most of your stuff into a butcher for processing or are you doing it yourself? We do, yeah. Yeah. My wife, my wife is totally understanding about me turning our front room into a museum, but uh, the kitchen's her domain. And she goes, no, we're not going to be butchering, you know, having to clean blood up out of there on a, on a regular basis or all fall. So I respect that. I have no problem with that at all. And when we get it done, it's done professionally. It's all packaged nicely. And, you know, when, when we go to give it away, it's, it's a, 
it's it, it just goes a lot better. Yeah, you definitely don't want to be pushing your luck with how many animals you're fortunate enough to hang in your living room. I don't know if I'd have that same luck with my wife. I think I would be told to build a barn or a, a man shop and finish it off and put all my stuff out in the shop. Well, let's see. Four of these are hers. So she has four in the front room here. But to, to give you, I can say that, but let me let me do kind of the, the spin around here real quick. Let me plug that back in. So that that elk is hers. That deer's my son's. Uh, the velvet buck's mine. The other one's my son's. Then those are my son's there. That big wide one's his. He shot that when he was a stinking 15-year-old punk kid. Not that I'm not better. Don't worry. I'm not better. Um, that one up in the corner there is mine. That was a, a velvet buck I shot in 2020. He was big, heavy, old deer. Uh, the wide one's my wife's. The These two down below there are both mine. Then this one, that one there is my best buck. Um, that one's mine. That one's mine on the floor. <laughs> uh, that one's, these are, those are all mine there. Uh, my, my one rifle buck is the, the heavy kind of non-typical there. And these two are my wife's. And again, the elk is my wife's, but you know, elk, whatever. So <laughs> if elk didn't taste so good, I'd never hunt them. I, they just, I, they, I, I, I really enjoy the techniques and tactics of mule deer hunting a lot more. Um, and I have friends who think I'm absolutely insane and they're probably right, but cause they just love hunting elk and I'll, I'll hunt elk, but usually just, I'll hunt elk enough to fill the freezer and that's kind of the, the extent of my my time on elk. So this is going to be a challenging year for me having that that special tag out in Utah to really buckle down and focus on elk. So Yeah, I was just going to say yeah. it sounds like you hunt elk for the freezer and mule deer for the soul. <laughs> I, that's a great way of putting it. That's a great way of putting it because I, I love and you know, I, I hunt I typically hunt elk in the same place. I same places and times I hunt deer, um, just so I'll have a tag and can, you know, take care of it right there. You know, if I if one like wants to commit suicide and run in front of me, you know, then I'll I'll take it. But uh, I, I I usually don't hunt elk until I, I don't hunt actively hunt elk until my deer tag is filled. So that's kind of how I've, I've gone about it for the most part. And do you hunt mule deer with your bow exclusively now, or would you use a rifle, but you just tag out before rifle season? So in Colorado, our, our tags are weapon specific. So if I get an archery tag, it's an archery tag. I cannot hunt with a rifle. So the only reason I have one with a rifle up there is because that was a year that I had, um, I picked up a second tag that was just kind of a weird little fluky deal that I picked up a private land only tag and shot a buck, but I haven't been able to get one since. So, <laughs> so not something you should really plan for, for sure. Yeah, that one's tough. Um, I, you know, I'm used to hunting States where you buy your tag and you can hunt your general season rifle, your general archery, 
you know, you can't obviously do the limited entry stuff, but I'm used to being able to do that, especially back home in Minnesota. It's, you know, you buy your deer tag and you can hunt any season, just use the right equipment. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, like I said, out West here, they, they typically make us, sorry, my dog, there's a delivery driver pulling up out front and he's, he's ready to go crazy and bark him to death. So, um, so I'm trying to calm him down here, but yeah, out West, they typically make us choose our weapon. So, I mean, some of the less populated States like Wyoming, not so much. Um, and when I say less populated, I mean, human population. Um, but, uh, but like Colorado, where we've got close to 6 million people here in the state, we just can't, you know, you just can't have people out there unlimited in all the seasons. Yeah. Uh, That's very fair. That's a good way to put it. You got to protect the resource. So it's always there for us. Um, yeah. And then one thing I've always been asked a lot, I, the, Probably the number one question I get asked when when people find out that I am an archery elk hunter is they're always asking what kind of broadhead do I use? And I've got my answer for elk, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on your mule deer archery setup because they're obviously different animals. You're doing different things. So what kind of broadhead are you using and are you doing anything, you know, special in terms of your archery setup, arrow weight, stuff like that? So, so deer, elk, and antelope, I use the same arrow and broadhead combination for everything. Um, and I, I mean, starting at the front, I'm using a Grim Reaper. I've got the Grim Reaper, they're one and three eighths inch head. Um, I think it's the perfect combination of a small profile and flight while open, you know, it's, it's built out of all steel. Chris, hey, Chris, sorry. 35 pounds of fury right there. He will lick you straight to death. Um, Chris, shut up. Come on. Come on. Anyway, sorry about that. So again, that Grim Reaper one and three eighths inch pro series up front. It's a straight mechanical. It's not a hybrid. It's a three blade cut. I'm, I'm a firm believer that three blades give you an infinitely better chance of catching um, something vital than a two blade and I've shot them both. I've killed stuff with both of them and I will, I'm a big three blade fan. That blade, that head's tough enough that I've passed through elk. I've passed through a lot of deer and I've passed through antelope, which passing through an antelope isn't saying a ton, but it's, you know, still a, a, a it's still a, a point of a, a data point, if nothing else. Um, and then I, I, I've been using four mil shafts for the last several years. Um, I used the gold tip pierces for a number of years from like 2015 to 2021. And then last year I switched over to Easton's and shot the four mil axis. Um, and that thing shot great. Arrow weight was right in the, this is actually the, the heaviest arrow I've ever hunted with. And it's like 424 grains or something like that. So it's, like I said, it's passed through a lot of stuff. Um, and then on the back end, I'm shooting, a, I've, I've shot four fletch for a long time. Um, four pretty short veins. I shot the 2.3 inch vein tech super spines for man, like a decade. And they're just getting harder and harder to find. So I, I bought some of the, uh, Q2I um, Griff X veins last year, which have a pretty similar profile. They're a little bit stiffer. 
and I shot those in the 1.8 inch last year, four of them. So, okay. What's your draw, draw length? Draw draw length. Um, I've got a 29 inch draw length through 20. I, I shoot 28 and 28 and, uh, 14 sixteenths. It's right. You know, 14, seven, eight. It, it's right. It's right there. I'm pretty detailed on that, but, uh, and then I'm shooting like 71, 72 pounds, just kind of depending on where that bow maxes out. But I like holding weight. I like a little bit of extra holding weight. So if there's an 80 and an 85 spot, I'm always going to take that 80 spot. Um, and if there's a 75, I'll take that as well. Because I, I just find that my shot works better with a little bit extra holding weight. Okay. And so you're shooting 424 grains with a 2970 essentially. So we're talking yeah. bow speeds. I mean, your arrow is probably over 300 feet per second as you're hunting it, right? It, you know what? It's it's usually, uh, I, I think on this particular setup, I'm shooting an RX-7 Ultra, that Hoyt RX-7 Ultra. It's not a speed bow by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's like 284 on that one. But it's a it's a very forgiving setup, very smooth to draw. Um, I can draw that in all kinds of weird, funky angles. If I'm on my knees, I don't have to I don't have to sky draw to get it back to full draw and get, you know, because I, I I figure every single shot and I, I draw like this ever all year. I'll, I'll stick that bow arm out and get it on the target, and I'm drawing straight back. So every single shot I make throughout the year, I'm drawing it like I'm drawing on an animal so that it's just second nature. It's not something that I have to think consciously, hey, draw smoothly so you don't get picked off. I draw smoothly all year. <laughs> so, so now this year I've got, the, uh, I've got that VTM 34 and that thing's a screamer at my draw length. It's, I'm like right in the wheelhouse of where they designed that cam for peak efficiency. Um, that 28 to 29 inch draw length, those guys, Guys like us love that VTM because it's just a freaking screamer at that draw length. Um, and so, I mean, just in comparison, that same arrow that I was shooting 284 is 30, I think it was 303 out of the out of the VTM. So um it's it's a great bow. It's I'm gonna have some hard decisions to make. Do I want to carry a little bit extra weight and have a little bit extra speed, or do I just want the smoothest? you know, smoothest shooting bow I've, I've ever owned. And so it's, we'll see, we'll see what I decide as we get closer to the season. So what, how many of your shots, because you're shooting uh, what's most people would consider an arrow not built for penetration, a light arrow with a mechanical broadhead. You're, it's probably what a lot of people would say is a, a faster setup to you overcome some of an animal dropping, but how many of your shots on a mule deer do you get a complete pass through? Damn near everyone. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost all of them. Um, I've had a couple that have the arrows stayed in them, but it's pretty rare. Um, and typically those shots are going to be more angled quartered shots. Like this last year, the buck I shot, he was at 48 yards and he was, he was facing straight on and as he started to angle a little bit and I'm, I'm already at full draw and I'm like, if he angles, if that back end comes around just a little bit more, I'm going to pound him right, right in the, right through that front shoulder. Cause I know I can skin, I can get through there, especially 
lengthwise, you know, broadside, that's that I will never aim intentionally at a shoulder, but I shot him and that I had about that much arrow sticking out of it. Um, so, I mean, that, that got in and through everything. Um, and he went, he was like 125 yards. I think, I think that one was, and honestly, that's been one of my longer recoveries over the last few years. <laughs> most of them have been, most of them I've literally watched them, watched them drop there. It's incredible to hear your story and to hear you talk about like having almost every one of your arrows as a pass through, especially in like today's age where the hype is all heavy arrow, a single blade. And I mean, that's what I'm shooting for elk is a single blade or a single bevel fixed two blade for penetration. And obviously elk is a little different animal than a mule deer. So when you say a two blade, I mean, are you shooting like an iron will that has the bleeder blades in there as well? Last year I shot the grizzly stick samurais 175 with no bleeder blade. This year I'm thinking about switching to the bleeders. So it would, you know, I, I would strongly, strongly recommend the bleeders just because again, that, that it just increases greatly your odds of cutting something vital on a shot. That's maybe not perfect or a shot that you go right by a major artery. And if you can hit that artery, man, your odds go up so much, you know? Yeah, I'm not too worried with my setup not getting a pass-through on deer no matter what I shoot. Um, I just don't like different arrow setups for elk and deer because I'm hunting them in the same season. So, you know, I don't want to have to get home from an elk hunt and have to switch up my whole sight and tapes and everything. No, and I won't either. Um, well, and, but I'm shooting, I'm shooting 72 pounds, 30-inch, and I think I'm, I'm thinking about switching to a 31-inch. No worries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, come on sorry had to get the guard dog settled down here <laughs> no worries but yeah like i said i'm thinking of switching to an 80 pound 31 inch hoyt so i'm gonna punch through a deer no matter yeah bleeders or no bleeders that arrow's going through it but those bleeders I'll be, like I'll you be said totally honest with you you're gonna punch through an elk if you hit him in the ribs <laughs> that's I mean, the goal that's, you know well with with either of those setups i've punched through them with with my setup at 2970 <laughs> gosh sorry he is chris seriously our neighbor across the street runs a daycare and somebody's dropping off a two-year-old and my dog feels like he needs to put that put an end to that so protect the house (laughs) at all costs yeah well so i'll tell you this my brother's shooting 28 62 and he mm-hmm. was shooting a very light, like a 420, 415 uh, grain arrow with a Schwacker like I said, four blade. This is the he's the heaviest arrow I've ever shot. He heaviest never, arrow I've ever shot. He's shot five bulls. He's never had a pass through. He's killed hmm. every one of them. And, you know, we've recovered them, but he's never had a pass through. And so he's like, I'm going to switch something up. And that's why we decided to go to that, that single bevel fixed for that. But the bleeder blade really isn't. On like a bleeder blade on an iron wheel is not going to make a difference on pass through. You know, if you're not going to get it's a pass through, not going to make a difference on the pass through, but yeah. it's going to give you a bigger hole. Yeah. And I mean, that's that, at the end of the day, those two blades. So I shot, man, I lost a deer several years ago on a shot that I never should have lost this friggin' deer. Um, and it was like back of the lungs, liver, but zipped right through. And that was with the early gen um, German kinetics, which turned into the grizzly stick, if I'm not mistaken. But 
no bleeder blades, two blade head, that, that hit put a surprisingly small amount of blood on the ground. And that's when I, that's when I switched. I'd shot mechanicals and I'd shot fixed and, um, you know, I, I just, I just, I switched back to a mechanical after that and went to that three blade. I played around with some of the, I played around with two different two blades. I've, I've shot a couple deer with Swackers um, and I've caught a, shot a couple deer with Tekkens, the old uh, G5 two blade. But man, truthfully, that, that third blade is everything for me, man. It just, there's your odds of cutting something vital. Just, it, it's like this versus this going through there and i mean so you know it, just to to kind of illustrate it bluntly that's that's what it that's what i i will do anything to get that third or fourth blade in there yeah i hear what you're saying yeah. if i only hunted deer i would use a drastically different arrow i would i was shooting four blade expandables the giant nap um i can't remember what they were called but it was the kill zones or whatever kill zone maxes. Yeah. With the, 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 the two that were open up over the top and then the two that were the rear deploy. And if I shot yeah. deer, I'd shoot those forever because of the pinpoint accuracy of flight. And with my setup, I'm going to punch through them. But when we did mostly elk, it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to build my arrow to recover elk and I'm going to bury my arrows in our food plot when I shoot a deer. And that's the trade off yeah. I'm going to make <laughs> because that so, exit hole on an elk is everything. And I have built, I've built my setup for accuracy over everything. That's my, that's my, that's my mm-hmm. motto when I'm setting up a bow is accuracy over everything. That's why I hunt with a single pin sight because I am more accurate with a single pin sight. I hunt with that mechanical because I know it will shoot better. And especially if I make anything but a perfect shot, it will shoot tighter than any fixed head I've tried. And trust me, I've tried a lot of them. I've, I've shot, I've shot a lot of fixed heads over the years. Um, and there's some great heads out there right now. I mean, that iron will, uh, that grim reaper Hades, those are phenomenal heads. I just, I know I will shoot better more accurately with a mechanical. And that's why I shoot it. Cause if I can put that thing in the ribs, it's going, it, I'm going to have two holes. I mean, that's just, my experience has led me to, to that opinion, yeah. deer or yeah. deer, elk or antelope. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's exactly uh, why I asked you the question. Cause it's a top, it's a, it's a very popular topic right now. And is, I think a yeah. lot of people from the Midwest assume you need this big tank of an arrow with a fixed head to, to go out West and hunt. And yeah, sure. It's not going to hurt you on an elk to get more penetration, but you, you know, you, it obviously you know, all the deer on the wall are a testament to the fact that you don't need it, especially for a mule deer. Well, and I, I mean, my first elk I shot, I shot a five point bull at like 32 yards and I was having really bad shoulder problems there for a few years. So I was shooting a Matthews LX and I think that bow maxed out. I think I had that one around 63, 64 pounds. And I was shooting that three blade fixed head and I shot that with a 365 grain arrow and he was dead in hundred yards. And when I walked up to him, he, he picked his head up one last time and he goes, I can't believe you killed me with such a light arrow and then died. 
<laughs> but but no, it's it, you know it, it accuracy again. It's accuracy over everything for me, and that that shot hit him well, and he he didn't go far. Incredible. Incredible. Well, just like oh, that, man, Henry, man. we've already racked up an hour. I mean, the time flies when you're talking giant meal deer. Um, <laughs> so. I wanted to thank you for being here and sharing some of your your experience and knowledge on the giant bucks with us and give folks a chance to follow along because you have a pretty active Instagram account. I do. So at Big Chief Wackabuck is my personal page. Um, And then my, uh, well, it started out with good intentions. My buddy and I were doing a, my buddy and I were doing a, a bunch of archery instructional videos and we were doing that under a page called not fit to hunt. And, uh, it was just kind of a, a, a little joke back at the CrossFit thing that was taken over, uh, Western hunting at the time. And, you know, we just, so yeah, that's kind of my two primary pages there. So. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, thank you for giving folks a chance to follow along and, and sure. learn a thing or two about big meal deer from you, Henry. And, and I appreciate your time. My pleasure, Brian. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks for listening folks. And thanks for being here, Henry. <laughs>